Well, thank you, Daryl. It is just a, a pleasure to be able to hear kind of what the, the globe banks were used for, because I know usually we have our wheelbarrow come through and we put in our, our, our gifts, our offerings, and then it's off to who knows where, for, and we never really get to hear. So, so thank you. It's a, it's a delight and a blessing to hear that. Well, church, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning together? We are in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7, so the little section that we skipped last week, we are coming back to it this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, well, we are... Ooh, we're, changed volumes there. So uh, we are, as we just saw, in one of the most famous, if not the most famous part of the New Testament. I think I probably said that about the Beatitudes, but you know, maybe the Beatitudes in this one are right up there together as most famous parts of the New Testament and the entire Bible as well. And it's a prayer. It's the model prayer that Jesus gives. And I think if I were to poll our congregation and I were to ask are you satisfied with your prayer life? I am willing to bet that the vast majority of us would say, you know, I really do wish my prayer life was better. I wish something was different in my prayer life. You see, we have a tendency in our prayer lives to either be kind of tentative as we approach the throne of grace or maybe even a little lackadaisical and kind of nonchalant, not really caring about what we're doing. Or maybe we just feel like, I don't even know where to start. We know that prayer ought to be this central part of the Christian life. But when it comes to actually praying and living out healthy prayer lives, we often do feel overwhelmed. Now, I think there's an underlying condition to many of those problems that we have with prayer. And ultimately, I think most of them come down to we honestly don't know if God really cares. Like, we know that God should care, and we have God's promises in His Word, but when it actually comes down to it, does God care? We tend to approach prayer as this, okay, I need to get God's attention. I'm reminded of the ways that uh, my children try to get my wife's attention. Mom, 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 mom. You know, just that constant, like, well, what? You know, that's generally what happens in our house quite often. 
She's far more patient than me. Is God like that? When we approach the Lord, what is his posture towards us when we come to him in prayer? Because we do tend to think, I need to get his attention, or I need to make him act on our behalf. But what Jesus is going to do in this prayer that we'll look at today is he's showing us that God is about getting our attention and moving us to act on his behalf. We're not seeking to bend God to our will through prayer, but prayer ultimately bends us to God's will. So we have been in this series called Greater Righteousness. As we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, because that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, is helping form a greater righteousness in us. And we're seeing that this greater righteousness is not doing a bunch of good things for God to like us, but it's having a heart that is aligned with what God desires, but also a heart that results in speaking and doing things that please the Lord. So it's not just external conformity to the law. It's not just doing spiritual things to get the praise of others like we looked at last week, but it's about having a particular heart, a heart that yearns for the Lord. Now, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I mentioned that there, in weeks past there are three teaching blocks, and we're in the middle of the middle teaching block. But not only are we in the middle of the middle of the teaching block, we're kind of in the middle of the middle of the middle of the teaching block. Because prayer falls in the middle of this middle teaching block. But even within this aspect of prayer, because last week, you know, prayer was one of the three spiritual disciplines we looked at, we land on this, oh, there's a particular way to pray that Jesus speaks about in this section. So the Lord's Prayer is, is very central to what Jesus is trying to communicate in this idea of greater righteousness. And again, it's not this thing that he's just tacking on to what we do, but this prayer is expressing in many ways who we are. Who we are. This prayer is really the center of relating to and interacting with the Lord. Now, as we walk through this today, I, I hope to not just give you a, a do this, this is how you do prayer. But really what I'm hoping to do is to say, this is what prayer is. This is how we ought to approach it, and this is how we grow in it and through it. Okay, so this is not a prayer manual. Here's how to have successful prayers that God will like. But more so of who are we as a people? How do we approach God himself? Because prayer naturally flows from, and I should say this prayer naturally flows from and expresses the trust that we have in God as Father. Something that flows from and expresses trust. Okay, so let's dive back in, starting in verse 7. And Jesus says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, uh, let me actually pause there and pray before we dive in more. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to hear what you have to say. May we have hearts that are tender and ready to receive it. Give me clarity of speech. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so diving back in with verses 7 and 8. This is kind of the introduction to what Jesus has to say. There's going to be three parts of what we look at today. There's this brief introduction, then we get the actual prayer, and then Jesus kind of concludes with that kind of warning. 
that very harsh sounding warning about forgiveness and forgiving other people where he expands on what we find in verse 12 of the prayer. But this is the introduction and he says, hey, don't be praying like the Gentiles do. And by Gentiles here, he's talking about people that are outside the family of God, people that don't know what God is like. He says, hey, don't be like them. Instead, uh, well, what they're doing and what we are to not do is to have this approach where I'm doing this magical thing. If I just say the right words, or I say them enough, or in the proper orientation, then God will hear me. It's like typing in computer code. If I just get this code right, then it'll spit out this other result over here. Or like the kids saying, Mom, 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 if I just say that enough, maybe she'll respond in some particular way. But God says, no, don't pray like that. We're reminded, uh, you know, a few, week, or a few months ago, we were walking through 1 Kings and we saw Elijah interacting with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal were trying to get Baal's attention. And they were babbling on all morning and cutting themselves, doing these wild things in order to get their God's attention. And Elijah mocks them. And he's like, yeah, you don't, your God's not even listening. He doesn't care. He's not real. But we have a God that we do not have to go on babbling in order to get his attention. Instead, Jesus says, your father knows what you need. Now, when Jesus says this, it's not a, well, he knows what you need, so you don't even need to ask. That's not what he's communicating. He's saying, you have a father who cares. You have a father who is so present that he knows what you're going to ask. It's not an excuse to not ask. It's a statement about how our God is there for us. It's how our God is there for us. He is aware. And it asks us the question, do I believe that my God actually delights in answering my prayers? I've been reading through uh, Jerry Bridges' Transforming Grace over the past couple weeks with another guy in our church And there was one statement that Jerry Bridges made in there that just struck me. He said, do you believe that your Heavenly Father delights in answering your prayers? And when I heard that, I thought, you know, honestly, I don't. I don't think my Heavenly Father often delights in answering my prayers. I think sometimes He's a little annoyed by me or bothered by the types of things that I ask for. I don't think He delights in that. I don't think the throne of grace is a throne of grace oftentimes. I think it's a fearful place to come and maybe your request will be listened to and even a smaller chance that it'll be granted. That's just my heart because I struggle to see God as the Father, my Father, who cares. But what Jesus is going to show us is to say, look, that's not the type of heart that God has for us and if I understand the type of heart that God has, then my heart is going to be different. I'll have a different expression of the relationship that I have with the Lord. All right, so let's look at our first point for today, basically what I've been saying just now. We do not need to struggle to get God's attention. We have it. We do not need to struggle to get God's attention. We have it. We already have it. When you approach prayer, are you approaching it in a way where 
I need to do something or say something to get God's attention. Because Jesus says, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That's the very definition of someone who already is looking and is aware and you have His attention. All right, so let's get into the prayer proper. So if we know we have a Father, Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer can be divided into two sections. There's basically six requests in the prayer as a whole. You know, we've talked about how Matthew loves his multiples of three, and the Lord's prayer is no different. We get three in the first half and three in the second half. And this first set of three kind of frames the, the tone of the prayer and really informs the second half. So Jesus, when he says, pray then like this, he's not giving us a, you know, a recitation or a, a code or, or something that I, I say these exact words in order to get God to pay attention, but instead he's giving us a framework. Think about prayer like this. Approach prayer in this way. Pray like this. What ought to I pray for? Now, I think it can be healthy to literally pray these words, but the danger is, is that it becomes rote. I just pray through and it doesn't mean anything. Growing up in, in the church that I grew up in, we would always pray this prayer when the pastor was done doing his pastoral prayer. So for me, as a young boy, it became the thing to mark the end of that section of the service and to kind of get closer to the end of the service when I could go do what I wanted. So it was just one thing that we did. Now, the church for 2,000 years has been reciting this prayer, but it's also been using this prayer rightly as a framework. You may be, when you read this prayer in the Scripture, you may be kind of surprised when you realized, oh, it doesn't end with, for thine is the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, the reason why we even put that at the end of the prayer is because the earliest Christians, in one of the earliest Christian documents we have, the Didache, in that document we see that it was like, hey, you should be praying, praying the Lord's Prayer regularly, and it added something to the end. Because this isn't just something I recite and check off and say I'm done. But it's something that I build my prayers around, and it informs me of the approach I ought to take. So the earliest Christians were using this more as a trellis for their vine than necessarily kind of a formula or a computer code that you type in. So this is a framework. Now, you'll see in your notes that under the second point, I've got kind of three sub-points, and they all start with proper prayer. And by proper prayer, I don't mean, huh, this is the proper type of prayer that you ought to do, but more so of prayer in the way it should be. Prayer in the way that's rightly, express, or rightly expressing the relationship we have to God. So that's what I mean by proper prayer. So in this first part of point two, proper prayer... It aligns our hearts to God's purposes. It aligns our hearts to God's purposes. That's what we see in this first half of the Lord's Prayer. So let's actually talk about the Lord's Prayer itself because it starts off with our Father in heaven. And like Dale mentioned earlier, this is radical. Our Father in heaven. Jesus really is the first one to speak about God as Father, especially in a Jewish context. Because God is holy. He's majestic. He's transcendent. He is the Father in heaven. 
when the Israelites are receiving the law at Mount Sinai, and God comes down on the mountain with fire and glory, they tremble, and they're like, Moses, please go up before us and represent us, because we can't even bear to hear God speak. He's awesome and majestic and terrible and mighty, terrible in the awesome way. But here Jesus says, our Father. God doesn't stop being majestic and holy and mighty, but here he says, yes, you get to connect in relationship, a fatherly relationship with this glorious God. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. He has come down to us. He is present. He is concerned. He is accessible. We've talked about that for the past couple of weeks. He is our Father. He's not just Father. He's our Father. Not my Father. You'll notice in the prayer that there's a bunch of plurals. There's a bunch of ours, us, we. It's not me, my, I. It's plural. You are brought into a family. We as Christians are together in community. We pray in community. One of the problems with what has happened in Western Christianity is we have made our faith my own. And yes, there is a sense that as individuals, we make individual decisions to follow Christ, but when we follow Christ, it brings us into a corporate community where we address God as our Father, our Father. So, that kind of is the beginning of this framework, that He is our Father. And then Jesus jumps into three requests. How will it be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done? Those are the three specific requests. Now, hallowed be your name, we hear that and we're like, okay, that's a word that we don't use and it sounds like Halloween. So what in the world? Okay, God, your name be praised on Halloween? Like, what, what are we talking about? But no, that's not what this means. And the reason you'll even still, it's still translated this way is because the Lord's Prayer is so famous that Bible translators are very hesitant to put this in what we would term as modern English. Because they're like, oh, people will look at that and think that we're messing with the text. But what it means is that God's name would be revered or be treated with reverence. That God's name would be seen to be holy. Sanctify your name, God, is what this prayer is praying. And this is the first request. So when Jesus says, how ought we to pray, the first thing that he brings, after mentioning that it's our Father in heaven, but the first thing that we come before the Lord with is, Lord, may you be glorified. May people see that it's about you. That you are great and awesome and mighty. The Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him together, forever, excuse me, and together. To glorify God. That's why we exist. And so Jesus starts off the prayer and says, that is first. When you think about your own prayer life, if you were to kind of summarize what you pray for, how often... Do you start your prayers with just worshiping the Lord and declaring who He is, even by yourself? Or do you just kind of dive in to the requests? Oftentimes, that's my struggle. It's like, I have all the things that I want to bring before the Lord, and I don't really want to stop and kind of just reflect on who God is 
and ask Him to be glorified, I can struggle with that. Because my needs, they feel so pressing. It's like, Lord, you really need to know about this. And yes, I know you're great and awesome, but I really, I want you to know, God, about what I want. And Jesus is forcing us to slow down and to think about who God is. Who is this God that we are approaching and asking for, or presenting requests? He is the God who ought to be glorified, whose name ought to be sanctified. So, when you think about your prayers, first and foremost, I encourage you just to start with dwelling on who God is, on His majesty and holiness. Because that needs to be brought together, His majesty and holiness, with the fact that He's Father. Because that then colors our prayers in beautiful ways. So you can start to see how this prayer that Jesus is offering is beginning to align our hearts. It's beginning to align our hearts in a different way. Because proper prayer aligns our hearts to God's purposes. Because then in the second request, we're requesting that God's kingdom would come. And this request is specifically asking that God's rule and reign would come in full in the world. You see, God is already king. He already has all authority. But we live in a fallen world that's broken. And we ought to long for that day when everything wrong will be made right. And there will be no more wrong at all where everything will be in line with his goodness. And Jesus here says, man, when we approach God the Father, do we long for his rule and reign to come? Do we pray, when we pray, do we pray with this sense or this longing for God's future realities to come? Do we even pray with an acknowledgement that this is not all there is? I mean, so often we get wrapped up in our kingdom here, do we not? Do we actually get wrapped up in God's coming kingdom? Are we so enamored with that that our hearts just cry out and say, God, I can't wait for your kingdom to come? I think of uh, Ben and Caitlin who are getting married this Saturday. I'm sure they're very excited. And they could be like, Lord, we do want your kingdom to come. But could you come on Sunday instead of Saturday? You know, or perhaps you're expecting a child or you're a grandparent with a child coming or you have a business deal coming up or you have something big in your life that you're longing for or expecting. Are we willing to stop and say, God, you know what? It's better if your kingdom were to come. It's better. Sometimes that can be hard to pray. But Jesus challenges us to pray it anyways. And we get the third request your will be done. And this can be honestly the hardest one. Not my will be done. Not Lord, let your will be what my will is. But Lord, your will be done. And this requires open-handed surrender. Where I'm saying, Lord, your will is better than mine. And I want what you want. I can struggle with this because my, my will, I, I really want what I want quite strongly. Uh, over a decade or so ago, um, my wife and I, were, we were serving for the summer in East Asia. And there's something about being in a foreign context for an extended period of time where some of your junk just comes out. And people started to notice that the way I treated rocks was not particularly husbandly. I was pretty domineering. One friend told me, uh, she approached me and was kind of confronting me. Not kind of, she was. She was rebuking me for the way that I was treating my wife. She said, what Mark wants, Mark gets. 
you know, whether it's what you eat or where you go and whatever you do, you just kind of run right over whatever rocks wants. I was like, ooh, you're right. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to hear in my life, was having a friend confront me, a single friend confront me about what was going on in my marriage. We find it hard, or I find it hard, to take my will and actually put it underneath someone else's. But God's will is fully good. And if I truly understand who God is, then it becomes far easier for me to put my will underneath His because His will is good. And I don't have to worry about what's going on in my life because I know that what He has said and what He has planned and what He has purposed will be better than whatever I can think of. It's fully good. So those are the first three requests, and you'll notice that at the end it says, on earth as it is in heaven. This fits with the former three. It's not just your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all three. Lord, may all three of these things be true on earth as it is in heaven. Why in heaven? Because it's happening perfectly in heaven. There's no rebellion in heaven. God's name is perfectly revered. His kingdom is there. His will is being done. And so do we long for this world to reflect heaven where God is fully in control. Not that He's not in control here, but where His will is fully expressed perfectly. Oh, do we long for those days. So, going back to this point, proper prayer aligns our hearts to God's purposes. If I start my prayer with these things, with longing for God to be glorified, longing for His kingdom, longing for His will, I start with those, then that will really shape and color than what I pray for in my life. Because all of a sudden, Lord, give me the vacation I want. Lord, give me that, uh, you know, nice thing over there, the shiny new toy that uh, I would really appreciate. Well, that starts to feel a little different than what God really desires from my life when I think about His will being done, His kingdom coming. What I pray for becomes changed. So let's look at the second half of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, three requests. Three requests. And what do they revolve around? True provision. So proper prayer trusts God for true provision. True provision. Not just provision, not just God meet the needs I think I have, God meet the wants that I desire, but the things that I actually need. So we're going to look at those three needs. The first one, giving us this day our daily bread. That's the first true provision that we need to trust God for. Daily bread. This will come, this harkens back to the idea of the Israelites being in the wilderness where they received manna every day and they couldn't collect more manna than they needed. They weren't allowed to. If they collected an extra day's worth, it would spoil. And so here Jesus is reminding, hey, trust God for your daily bread, for your daily manna, your one-day supply of what you need. He doesn't say, Father, give us this day the retirement nest egg that I would like, or the dream home, or the perfect children, or the job that I've always wanted, or that better test score, or the personality and looks that I think will benefit me in this life. It's No, it's the very basic, 
Lord, give me what I need. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't pray for blessing, but do I trust God for what I actually need? And we live in a society that we don't live where kind of one day to the next where I go to work and I get paid at the end of the day and I use that money the next day to actually buy my food. We don't live in that kind of society. So when we're confronted with something about praying for my daily needs, we don't really even have a category for that. Like, I honestly don't know what that's like to not know what I will eat tomorrow or where, that's money, where that money is coming from. Some of you do know, and I will say you have been blessed to have been in that spot because it opens you to understanding what God has said. But for most of us who live here, in this place, in this country at this time, we don't understand this. But God says we ought to be praying for these things. But more specifically, I ought to be trusting God for my daily needs. My whole heart should be shaped in a way that's not longing for more than I need. Again, that doesn't mean that I can't have blessing or that God doesn't bless some people with more uh, material provisions than others. But is my heart just simply content? It says, yes, God, I have my daily bread. Lord, you are meeting my physical needs. The second need is Obviously, forgive us our debts, and he's talking about sins. We need forgiveness of sins. The debt created by sin when we wrong the Lord, wrong other people, when we bring shame, brokenness, guilt, those things into our lives and into the world. We need forgiveness, and we're asking God to provide that. You see, all of us have sinned against God, a holy and perfect God, a God who deserves for his name to be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. That's the God that we have sinned against. And because of that, we deserve eternal separation from Him. Hell, damnation. But God, in His mercy, sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay that price. And He invites us to say, will you believe that Jesus' death is enough? That Jesus' death will cover the price of your sin? And we can either respond in faith and repentance or we go our own way and say, no, God, I'm going to keep doing my own thing. I'm going to try to earn forgiveness through doing good stuff or I just don't even care about forgiveness. But Jesus here says that when we pray, we need to pray to the Lord for forgiveness. So it's like, well, okay, if we're forgiven when we become Christians, when we believe in Christ, that Jesus' death on the cross covers our sins, and we're forgiven, then why do I need to continue to ask for forgiveness? And even later on in the prayer, we're going to visit this in a minute, where he says, like, we need to be forgiving or God's not going to forgive us. It's like, what do we do with all of that? I'm going to expand it more in a second, but basically here, just very briefly, is that we are in relationship with the Father, and yes, we do stand completely forgiven, But we do go on sinning, and when we sin and we understand our sin, yes, we're ultimately positionally forgiven by the Lord. We still need to relationally come to Him because we live in time and space. We need to come to Him and ask for forgiveness because that is the right response to our sin. When I sin against someone else, I know that, oh, I need to go to you and ask for forgiveness, even if I know that they are gracious and have already forgiven me. It's still on me to go to them. Same thing with our Heavenly Father. We're going to dive back into this point in a minute when we get to the end. But basically, I want to highlight that we have a real spiritual need for forgiveness. We have a physical need for food, and we have a real spiritual need for forgiveness. Spiritual need for forgiveness. And then lastly, we have another real spiritual need, 
for protection. For protection. Because he says what? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's all one request. It's like this, or not this, but this. So we have this last request. And you may look at this and say, okay, does God tempt us? thought somewhere else in the Bible it says that God doesn't tempt. In James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, so God is not the author of temptation. He doesn't create temptation in our lives. So what does it mean when Jesus says to pray, lead us not into temptation? Lead us not into temptation. Well, I think in many ways, you know, all of Matthew and the whole Bible is connected, but just a few chapters earlier in Matthew, we saw that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, to be tested. God does test us where we are put in situations not so that we'll fail, but so that we will grow and show our dependence upon him. Not as if he's curious, like, well, I wonder if this guy is going to, you know, figure this out and trust me. But he puts us in places where we will learn to grow and exercise that muscle of faith. We are tested by God. God tested Abraham with his son Isaac. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, what I think he's creating here is, for, is, is a sense for us to say, do I cry out to the Lord and trust him and say, Lord, protect me from myself. Not only protect me from myself, but protect me from the evil one. Because he's out there looking to devour us. I need protection. Israel, when they were in the wilderness, tested the Lord. God was testing them, and they tested the Lord. How? They grumbled and complained. They're like, Lord, we don't want your manna. We want meat. We're frustrated. You're not giving us enough. Well, Lord, lead me not into temptation. It's a cry for help for his protection against our own hearts, against the enemy. Help us to trust the Lord fully saying, God, help me. God, help me. We need protection. So we have three basic needs that we kind of uncover in this uh, bottom half of the prayer. We have physical needs. We have two spiritual needs of forgiveness and protection. In all of this, God is the one who provides. So we see in the first half, we're saying we pray for the things that God desires, and then that reorients us to our true needs, the things that we want, and we're trusting Him in that. And as you can see, this is God getting our attention. He's changing us, and this is good. God cares enough for us where he is not content to leave us praying for silly things, praying for things that don't matter to his name. He says, I want to shape you and change you to be children that truly reflect me, and that is good. Praise be to God that he is not willing to leave us in our junk. Praise be to God for that. Proper prayer trusts God for true provision. One application for, for this, looking at the Lord's Prayer. Set aside five minutes in your schedule and just pray through the prayer. Specifically, pray through it in your own language. Take each line one by one as a request and say, okay, how can I pray for this specifically in my life? 
What would it mean for this to be true in my life? Lord, what, does your, what, what of your will needs to happen in my life? Just try that and see how it changes and colors your prayer life. Don't just come with the list of, okay, God, here's all the things that I want. But walk through this prayer in a methodical way, just for a season, and kind of see how it shapes the way that you casually pray with the Lord. All right, let's move on to this last one real quick, because Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives us this model prayer, but then he gives this conclusion. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Ooh, Jesus, that feels like a threat. There's been a lot of threats in this sermon, hadn't there? Not hopefully my sermon, but in Jesus' sermon. He's, he's had some hard things to say. And what do I do with this? With this? this is a difficult theological thing to get around. Jesus cares so much about us forgiving our neighbors that he revisits this. Like he just mentioned in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He's like, hey, just so you don't miss it, we're going to circle back and come to this. Because he's like, you can be praying for all these things, but if your heart isn't rightly moving towards others, if you have a heart that isn't willing to forgive others, you've missed the whole point. You don't understand who your father is. This is important to the Lord. So, is Jesus saying, I need to forgive to get forgiven? Well, yes and no. Our forgiveness of others doesn't earn God's forgiveness of us, but when we don't have a forgiving heart, it reveals that we have not been forgiven by God, and when we stand before him at the end, we won't be forgiven. Matthew is very concerned with the end, kind of what happens on Judgment Day. And so, do I actually demonstrate that I've been forgiven? I preached on this during actually my candidating weekend, uh, way back on March 1st, uh, Matthew 18. Jesus unpacks all of this, so I don't have time to go there now, but in case you want kind of a deeper exploration of what is actually going on here, I encourage you, go back and listen to that. But in brief, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I think a good illustration for this is a medical chart. When I sit before, you know, I'm sitting in the hospital bed and the doctor comes in, if I'm free of cancer, it's not the doctor that makes me free of cancer. He looks at my medical chart, reads the test results, and says, oh yes, you are free of cancer, you can go home. The doctor didn't make me free of cancer. In the same way, when we stand before the Lord, and we look at our lives, and it's judged, it says, oh, you were forgiving. Yes, you were someone who was forgiven, and is forgiven now. You are forgiven. Enter into your Father's rest. So it's a medical chart. Me forgiving demonstrates that I have been forgiven. And if I don't forgive, then indeed I won't be forgiven at the end because I haven't been forgiven now. The only way that I can truly forgive others is when I actually understand the depth of the debt that has been paid on my behalf and that frees me up to, to, to forgive others. How does all of this kind of fit together? If I'm truly trusting God and wanting what He wants, and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, hence our banner this year, and then I'm praying for my needs, then I'm free to forgive other people because I know that God is going to give me everything that I need. I trust Him completely as my Father. And I'm freed to forgive people. I don't need to get them to pay me back. I don't need to get them to say nice things to me. I don't need to be a particular way. I am free. And I'm free to give forgiveness. I'm free. All right, 
So with all of that, oh, I forgot to put this up there. There you go. Proper prayer frees us to forgive people. It frees us to forgive people. You've got your summary statement there on your worship, uh, your service order. But prayer doesn't get God's attention. It's how he gets ours. When you approach prayer, are you trying to get God's attention? Or do you come to God in prayer believing that he already is looking and cares and is active in your life? And you're asking God, will you conform my life and heart to yours? Prayer doesn't get God's attention. It's how he gets ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our Father. May your kingdom come and your will be done in this place. Father, help us to actually ask for the things we only need. Or help us to care mostly about the things that we need. Father, we do thank you for the ways that you are good and you bless us. And we praise you that you give us more than we need. Thank you, Father. Father, help us to forgive. And we praise you for your forgiveness for us. May you forgive us of sins that we become aware of today and confess to you. And Father, lead us not into temptation. Help us to trust you. Father, protect us from ourselves and from the enemy. May we turn to you faithfully and always. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.